When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, there are 219,000 women in prison in the United States. Rachel Kushner's new novel, The Mars Room, is a story about one of them. She'll be in studio to talk about it. Also, more than 4,400 African Americans were murdered by white mobs between 1877 and 1950. Now there's a new memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. Patricia Williams, the nation columnist, has been thinking about that. But first, the news from Jerusalem and Gaza. For that, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's also the author of a novel about Palestinians and Israelis set in Jerusalem. It's called Martyrs Crossing. The New York Times reviewer called it sophisticated, suspenseful, and tautly written. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Remind us what happened on Monday in Jerusalem and Gaza. Well, the Americans moved their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and the Israeli Defense Forces killed more than 60 Palestinian protesters. That's like the very bland version of the news. Moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, the dedication was uh, like a festival of uh, religion and American politics, it seemed to me. Yeah, well, the president didn't go. One wonders why possibly he doesn't like angry Palestinian protesters. So he sent his Jewish relatives into the fray, Ivanka Trump and her husband, Jared Kushner, as Stephen Colbert calls them, Peace Treaty Barbie and Collusion Ken. And Ivanka unveiled, as if it were a a headstone at a cemetery, Mm. she unveiled the um, plaque dedicating the Jerusalem American Embassy. Which has her father's name. Which has her father's name prominently figured. The audience included leaders of the Jewish right in America. Yeah, figuring largely among them was Sheldon Adelson, the Vegas mogul who's been a huge Trump supporter and really is, to my mind, single-handedly responsible for this grotesque change in in U.S. policy. He's a giant contributor to the super PACs that funded Trump's election 
He supports uh, conservative super PACs both in the Congress and the Senate. And I don't mean to the tune of $1 million. I mean to the tune of 20 and $25 million for each of these super PACs. Essentially, folks, he's running your government. You could even say that there was a quid pro quo for this embassy. I'll give you $25 million. You move the embassy. He has offered also to uh, fund construction of the new embassy because this, the embassy that you saw on television is just a uh, temporary thing. They're going to build a huge American defended embassy there. And Sheldon Adelson has offered to contribute to that construction, which will be the first time a private person has ever contributed money to a U.S. government construction project if it is allowed to go through. So this is his baby, and Trump has done his bidding. I think we need a little history. Seven presidents have refused pressure to move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Why is that? Because Jerusalem is a contested city. There are many contested places in the world. Jerusalem is probably the prime contested city in the world. The Palestinians claim it as theirs. The Muslims claim it as one of their holy cities. Of course, the Jews claim it as one of their holy cities, but the hard right of Israel claims it as the unified and indisputable capital of Israel. So that's why the right in Israel has always wanted the Americans to cave and move that embassy to Jerusalem. But the American presidents until now have understood that peace is absolutely impossible between the Palestinians and the Israelis if the Americans basically de facto declare Jerusalem to belong to Israel entirely. And this is not just a program of the Israeli right and the American Jewish right. There's also a Christian evangelical movement that supports right-wing Zionism. At the dedication, the opening prayer was given by a Dallas megachurch pastor who has said, quote, Mormonism is Islam, Judaism, and Hinduism lead people to an eternity of separation from God in hell. That's who Trump picked to give the opening prayer. And the closing prayer was given by one of America's most prominent end-time preachers who once said that Hitler was sent by God to drive the Jews to their ancestral homeland in Israel. He gave the closing benediction. Want to say anything about the evangelical right and their support for right-wing Zionism? You know, you couldn't have picked two better people to encapsulate the kind of Trump worldview of Israel. This is a situation where conservative fundamentalist Jewry meets conservative fundamentalist American Christianity, and they're pressing a button that is a very dangerous one. In Israel, I mean, this is absolutely, you can't deny that this is provocative. Meanwhile, at the Gaza border, how far away is the Gaza border from— 40 minutes by car. 40 minutes by car. I mean, this is like you and I have a commute to school that takes longer than that. I used to go from crazy situations at checkpoints to dinner in Jerusalem, and, you know, it's a half an hour drive. It's an amazing closeness. People don't realize how small Israel is. So meanwhile, at the Gaza fence, there's a movement now, uh, nonviolent mass protests of thousands and thousands of Palestinians challenging Israelis at the fence. Tell us about that. Well, this is uh, something that has been organized in advance of what's called the Nakba. The Nakba is the catastrophe 
it translates as. And it is a very grim holiday every year uh, among the Palestinians where they observe the ethnic cleansing of Palestine and the replacement of the Palestinians with the state of Israel. So it's definitely an organized protest to commemorate that and to express, of course, the horror of Gaza right now. There's no clean water in Gaza. The borders are cut off. These people can't get away. Students who are brilliant and wonderful can't go abroad to study. People can't be reunited with their families, except with the permission of Israel. So to say that there's no more occupation of Gaza by Israel is actually not even true. I said this was a nonviolent mass protest. The Israelis say that their use of uh, gunfire, snipers, machine guns is justified uh, because these were not nonviolent protests. What exactly were the, the, the tactics? Were there guns? Did, they, did the Palestinians come to the border with guns? Of course the Palestinians didn't have any guns. The Palestinians almost never have a gun. There are no guns on the Palestinian side. Where would they get guns? Import them through Israel? I don't think so. The Palestinians are, though, very angry. There are many, many of them, which is a reason to freak out a little bit if you're the Israeli Defense Forces, but not a reason to shoot into a crowd. And they've been throwing some rocks and they have sent, it's just a beautiful, weird thing that they do, sending these incendiary kites into Israel. So these beautiful childish things, but with some flaming gas uh, tails on them that can start fires, which they sometimes do and sometimes don't. These don't seem to me to be reasons to use machine guns and snipers on a crowd. And throwing stones at the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, it's a very symbolic thing. Can I mention the names of David and Goliath? Yeah, David and Goliath, it's something that the Israelis always talk about, how they are Goliath, and and these are not obviously the right-wing Netanyahu people, but that how Israel is Goliath, and the Palestinians are like David, and the Palestinians are also well aware of the biblical symbolism, and the slingshot has always been the favorite weapon of the Palestinian protesters, and they wield it, and then the Israelis return unlike Goliath, with gunfire. If only Goliath had had gunfire, he would have won the battle against David. So meanwhile, at the American embassy in Jerusalem, Jared Kushner gave a speech saying, quote, peace is within reach, close quote. What's your assessment of uh, the accuracy of Jared's remarks? What can he possibly mean by peace? One of the things about any embassy being moved to Jerusalem was it was always contingent throughout the Oslo peace talks and all the attempts at peace accords. It was always contingent on there being a Palestinian state there. The Trump family, the Trump presidency, Jared Kushner and Sheldon Adelson have together taken away that prize that could have been awarded for peace. They've taken away one of the many uh, carrots to be given for peace talks between the two enemies. And Netanyahu, in his speech, did not say peace is is, uh, in the future. He said this is a great day for For Israel. Israel. He's not thinking about peace with the Palestinians. He doesn't care. They can starve to death in Gaza for all he cares. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. Only a few members of Congress have criticized Israel for killing Palestinians at the Gaza fence. One of them is Betty McCollum, a Democrat from St. Paul. 
who tweeted on Monday, Today's U.S. Embassy opening in Jerusalem and killing of dozens of Gaza protesters advances the Netanyahu agenda of occupation and oppression of Palestinians. Trump policies are fueling conflict, abandoning diplomatic efforts to achieve peace. Betty Column of St. Paul and across the river in Minneapolis, Keith Ellison declared that he was, quote, shocked and dismayed by the lethal force used by Israeli troops against mostly unarmed protesters demonstrating at Gaza's border, close quote. Why do you think it's only a handful of people in the U.S. Congress who are willing to make statements like these? I hate to say that it might be the Israeli lobbies that are supporting their campaigns. But I also find it amazing that Ellison is shocked. Why is he shocked? Look at what the Israelis are willing to do. They go in and they bomb people in their homes. At least these are protesters saying something political. You know, thousands of, of Gazans have been killed by the Israelis in the past decade. So this is really small change comparatively. I'm not shocked. I'm disgusted uh, as usual, but shock doesn't enter into it. Any last thoughts on the events of Monday? Well, one thing to think about is how it's in it's in the uh, Trumpian tradition, this particular event. He's pulled out of Paris. He's pulled out of the Iranian Accord. He's now moved the embassy. He does not have respect for global agreements and norms. And so what he's really doing here is making America not great. He's making America less powerful, less meaningful of a global player, showing our immature and unserious side, showing a total disrespect for American historic policy, and just putting us out of the game, except for we are still a giant superpower. So when you're the bully on the playground, people still have to pay attention to you, still have to deal with your behavior, even though you're an idiot. Every day, Trump makes the world less safe. Monday was a big one. Amy Willens. Amy, thanks for coming in today. Thanks a lot, John. Now it's time to talk with Rachel Kushner. She's the author of the amazing novel, The Flamethrowers. It was a bestseller and a finalist for the National Book Award. We talked with her about it here. Her debut novel, Telex from Cuba, was reviewed on the cover of the New York Times Book Review, and her fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, and The Paris Review. Her new novel is The Mars Room. Rachel Kushner, welcome back. Thanks, John. There are 219,000 women in prison in the United States. The Mars Room is a story about one of them. It's 2003, and Romy Hall is serving two life terms plus six years at Stanville Women's Prison in California's Central Valley. It's the largest women's prison in the world. She killed the creep who was stalking her. She left behind a seven-year-old son. Her mother is taking care of him now. Uh, Rachel, people who know what prison is like on the inside say your account is utterly convincing. A friend wrote me that he had found a story in The New Yorker by someone named Kushner who has a perfect ear for prison and the life around it. How did you do this? How come you know so much about women's prisons and women prisoners? Did you do research? 
I, I think it's a combination of factors. Um, in this case, specifically, the structural conditions of prison are a world that I did commit myself to understanding, not so much as a novelist, but just a person and citizen of California and someone who was interested in the way that the society is layered and structured. And I wanted to know why some people end up kind of inducted into the criminal justice system and others are not touched by it really in any way. And in fact, it sort of remains invisible to them. So I embarked on a project of getting to know people who were serving life sentences in a prison called Central California Women's Facility. Um, my prison, Stanville, in the book is a, you know, is a fictional place, but it shares certain characteristics with the CCWF, which is based in Churchill. And I went there regularly as a volunteer with a wonderful human rights organization called Justice Now and started getting to know people. But I had also grown up with a couple of people who went to prison. It wasn't a completely foreign territory for me. And in addition, one last thing, I think that was a huge immersion for me, but of a very different kind than working with Justice Now I went on a tour with criminology students, a bus tour up and down the state of California to, I believe, 12 men's facilities, one women's facility. But the men's facilities that we went to, we we were there under a kind of like unique guise, which was that the students were being greeted and introduced to the world of working for the Department of Corrections because many of them would go on to be hired by the state. And I was there undercover, and we were spoken to as insiders. In other words, we were spoken to by corrections officers as if they were with their own kind and could, you know, no pun intended, let their guard down (laughs) and share openly their feelings about their jobs and about their charges. And we were allowed to wander around on yards and go into people's cells and talk to them, and that's quite unusual. And so I was able to see for myself what prisons look like. I can't claim to know what it feels like to be incarcerated. I mean, and I just wouldn't do that. But I was immersed and exposed. I don't know much about prisoners convicted of violent crimes. I have the standard left liberal view. Most of them never had a chance. They never had a decent childhood. They never had parents who took care of them. We hear a lot about wrongful convictions of people in prison for serious crimes, people who are actually innocent. We hear about the cops lie, the DAs cover up for the cops. But your women are not innocent victims of police lies. And I thought a lot of the women in prison were there not because they did horrible things, but because they had boyfriends who did. They drove the getaway car for the bad boyfriend. They carried the drugs for the bad boyfriend. They hid the bad boyfriend's gun. But that's not really true of the the women in your book, especially Romy. Romy is not innocent. No, she isn't. And um, you do hear a lot about wrongful convictions and um, cops and DAs lying. And however, I'm interested in the truth. And I'm also interested in standing up for people who have not been given much of a voice in our society. And the fact of the matter is, from my perspective, those people don't have a voice, A, and B, 
Most of the time, they have done the thing of which they were convicted, but that doesn't mean I can't have sympathy for those people because Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm in a position to judge other people that have not had my own experiences or the certain like societal advantages that I've been given because I'm middle class. In California, as the statistics go from multiple sources, 90% of people filling the state prisons have been convicted of what the state considers in their language serious violent felonies. So in order to advocate for the actual people who've been thrown away by our society, I believe that one, in this case me, needs to advocate for the so-called guilty and not for the very rare and actually quite small percentage of people who liberals could reinterpret as relatively innocent. We care so much about Romy and what's happening to her and what happens to her is really terrible. The most terrible part comes when Romy is told that her mother's been killed in a car accident and this means there's nobody to take care of her young son and he apparently will be taken away and adopted by unknown people. And the most infuriating thing in the book is the response of the prison staff to Romy seeking help in finding her young son and finding out what's happening to him. They tell her, your situation is due 100% to the choices you made and the actions you took. Well, how about the lifetime of bad things that happened to her that she did not choose? But even as I wrote that, I felt a certain sympathy for the woman who works as a correctional officer because I've been around those people a lot. And they themselves are working class people, usually from these rural communities in the Central Valley. The only education you need to be hired by the California Department of Corrections as a guard is a GED, you know, an equivalency exam. And you can get paid an almost middle-class salary to work in that environment. But the cost of it for the person psychologically, I believe, is absolutely enormous. Those are really stressful jobs. They have a very high rate of depression and suicide. And I can see, or at least I believe I can see, a kind of brittle carapace that the guard takes on in order to justify what Mm -hmm. they have to assist in enforcing. And so they tell themselves that it's okay that these women have been separated from their children. Um, There's a scene in the book where the character Gordon Hauser asks a guard if it's hard to watch the women and children saying goodbye to each other for those who are lucky enough to get family visiting. And um, that was a question that I asked a guard in the women's facility. And she said, you grow a thick skin and they are in that situation because they deserve it, because this is these are choices they made. And I knew that she didn't really believe that underneath what she said. I mean, she's literally standing there on the sidewalk in Chowchilla while children are screaming and crying and Mm. hugging the legs of their mothers. I know it's brutal, but, um, you know, and thinking into this and writing about it, I'm not interested in isolating, you know, in locating and naming villains. I don't really believe that that's how the society works. If there were good and evil structuring things, we probably could have found solutions a long time ago. It's more complicated that. And all the people in the book are people to me with complexity and nuance. Well, of course, the challenge in writing this story is 
to have something other than misery and suffering and horrible crying children. Yeah. And thank God you succeeded at finding plenty of this. But please, please explain how you did it. Sure. I mean, I don't know exactly how I did that, but I do feel that I um, the thing I'm most proud of about the book is the comedy and the vitality in it, which don't feel like they take away from the horror. They don't dissipate any of the pressure of the world that I attempt to render. It's more like I felt all the way along, even before I started writing the book, I knew from my own experiences of knowing people that people are full of humor and vitality and the capacity to make light of a situation, to bring something darkly funny and poignant to it, and that if I wasn't doing that in my writing, that that it was going to be a failed project. Um, and people are funny in prison. I mean, they're they have a kind of brilliance that's actually rather unique. And I, th- I have a new theory about it, which is that they are in such close quarters with one another and they've been stripped of all of these manners of identity formation, like what Irving Goffman would call your identity kit. And what they have as currency is their personalities, which is to say their ability to seduce and charm and intimidate and threaten and to perform so I wanted to evoke that. Tell us about Justice Now. Well, Justice Now is an incredible organization with a quite unique foundational history, I would say, from what I know about it. Um, there's a lawyer named Cynthia Chandler who's based in Oakland who was working with some uh, long-termers, lifers at Chochilla. And she got the idea to start an organization whose leaders would be primarily made up of women or people in the women's prisons serving long sentences. And she went to people in prison and she said, not bring me people who are interested in human rights and documenting human rights abuses, which is the the work of Justice Now. Instead, she said, bring me people in the prison who are shot callers, who have enormous social power in the prison. Mm. And those are the founding board members of Justice Now are these really cool, very tough, very respected people who've been in prison for a long time and are looked up to by their peers. And they were taught human rights law and they were taught how to teach it to other people and how to document abuses. And they do this incredible work. And the president of Justice Now right now is a person named Michael Concepcion, who is a lifer in Chowchilla and a good friend of mine. And he is a trans person who leads this organization from inside the prison, which is how can you not be on board with that? It gives people, I think, an incredible sense of purpose. And they've done some great work. They got legislation passed in California that makes it illegal to sterilize women without their consent, which is something that had been happening, believe it or not, in California prisons. So they do ongoing daily work, and they also have had some very monumental successes. One last thing. Rachel Kushner, are you related to Jared Kushner? I am not related to Jared Kushner, although I did ideate on what I thought would be the comedy of pretending that we are cousins and referring to that family as our trash Jersey kin. (laughs) 
And my husband calls him Cousin Jared <laughs> and recently emailed me after Jared got his um, security clearance downgraded. Cousin Jared is in deep shit. <laughs> <laughs> the book is The Mars Room, a novel. The author is Rachel Kushner. Rachel, thanks for this book and thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me, John. More than 4,400 African Americans were murdered by white mobs between 1877 and 1950. That's the conclusion of the Equal Justice Initiative, a nonprofit legal center. They've built a memorial in Montgomery, Alabama to recognize those killings. It opened last month. Patricia Williams has been thinking about the new National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery. She's a longtime columnist for the nation. She also teaches at Columbia Law School. She's the author of several books, including The Alchemy of Race and Rights and Open House on Family, Food, Piano Lessons, and the Search for a Room of My Own. Patricia Williams, welcome. Thank you so much. Lynchings were typically public events carried out in front of big crowds of white people, and often photos were sold afterwards. It's, it's one of the most horrifying things in all of American history. How does the memorial deal with the horror? I don't know how anyone, including a memorial, can deal with the horror. I think it provides a beautifully constructed space for reflection. I think it lives up to its name as memorial. It is dedicated to memory, but the process of remembering. And so each lynching is, is memorialized by a hanging slab of metal. It's suggestive of the horror rather than trying to directly reinscribe it. The monument and the associated museum in Montgomery feature the anti-lynching work of an amazing person, Ida B. Wells Barnett. Tell us about her. Ida B. Wells and later Barnett, her married name, is probably best known for her anti-lynching crusade. In a newspaper that she originally published, centered in Memphis, Tennessee, her outspokenness around the topic of lynching actually meant that the white elite in Memphis at that time burned her press to the ground and threatened her life and told her never to come back. She was out of town at the time the press was attacked, and she moved ultimately to Chicago and proceeded to continue to write for the early African-American press and urged people to leave Memphis in particular and the South more generally. And I understand there's a family connection where relatives of yours cross paths with Ida B. Wells. I think that is true. She graduated from a place called Rust College in, in Mississippi, actually, just across the border in Mississippi, which was one of the early schools that countered, in the wake of emancipation, the history of anti-literacy laws. One consequence of the fear of slaveholding states that slaves were going to rise up was the fact that in many and most, actually, of the slaveholding states, it was against the law to teach slaves to read and write. That ended with Emancipation Proclamation, with Reconstruction. Rust University was founded by northern missionaries who came south to educate slaves. It's part of that response to the anti-literacy laws 
the attempt to educate recently freed slave populations. Um, both Ida B. Wells attended that school, as did my grandmother and a couple of her sisters. In addition, when Ida B. Wells urged people to leave Memphis in particular, my mother's family, my grandmother's family, I should say, um, my great-grandmother's family, were from a small town just outside Memphis and heeded her urging. They witnessed um, the lynchings of that time, in particular the lynchings of some of Ida B. Wells' B. Wells's close friends in Memphis, and uh, they also headed for the North. And that's how my family came, my mother's family, my mother's side of the family came to Boston um, just around the turn of the century, the late 1890s. A lot of the coverage of the memorial's opening at the end of April focused on interviews with the descendants of lynching victims. You say in your new column um, for The Nation that there are some more topics that, that have to be foregrounded to honor everything this project intends to evoke. And the first one on your list is dealing with the descendants of perpetrators. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yes. You see photographs. There's a really intriguing and horrific book called Without Sanctuary. It is a collection of photographs, um, many of which were postcards mailed to the United States Post Office, um, all of these lynchings that occurred uh, throughout the South. And they are done by professional photographers who set up their devices, and they were collectibles. They would frequently involve white people smiling and laughing and pointing you began by sedating that these were uh, public events, more public than we acknowledge. I think there's a memory of night riders or this was done somehow by dark of night. But lynchings were very public events. Schools in some places were let out. The entire city government would uh, show up. Thousands of people would come from the county all around. Some of these postcards in these collections clearly document the faces of children watching people who had been lynched the, their, their bodies riddled with bullets, uh, their bodies burned uh, and doused with gasoline, parts of their bodies being divvied up, particularly the genitals, fingers, locks of hair, and given away as souvenirs, these events called barbecues. And the trauma of that, the trauma of that, I think, has led to two very divided senses of memory within, our, within these United States. And I think the suppression of it is something we are only now becoming coming to terms with. In addition, the degree to which these people who perpetrated this clearly transmitted a kind of emotional state to their own children within their families. People who do this have their own families. And that kind of public abuse is surely related to acts of private abuse, of domestic abuse as well. We really haven't come to terms with that kind of traumatic reiteration in our policing policies, in our segregation of schools, which are in to some degree a, a continuation of the anti-literacy policies under slavery and certainly the phenomenon of mass incarceration. The New York Times reported on one fascinating in- encounter between the descendants of uh, perpetrators of lynching and the descendants of victims. A woman named Karen Brannon, a white woman from Georgia, discovered doing family history that her Some of her relatives had been part of a mob that had lynched four black people, three men and a woman, in Hamilton, Georgia, in 1912. 
And she decided to write a book about that that she called The Family Tree. It was published two years ago. And one of the people who read that book was a black woman in Alabama named Jackie Jordan Irvine, a professor emeritus of urban education at Emory University, who realized that she was related to one of the lynching victims the two women met and, according to the New York Times, became friends. Is that the sort of legacy confrontation that you have in mind? I I do. I think that that their confrontation is rather rare Yeah. because they ended up becoming good friends, and they're both writers, and I think one of them is a professor. The kind of intellectual conversation they had, the kind of reconciliation over uh, and in reviewing uh, the generations that have brought them to the present moment is something I wish could be reiterated over and over and over again. But my concern is that the trauma on both sides of, of, of what has happened in the wake of lynchings means that these people almost never have that kind of conversation. One of the things they observed in those two women's coming together was that they lived within short miles of one another. But the entire construction of their life in the Deep South was meant to keep them separate and to have separated them from the time of that lynching. And I believe it was in 1912 uh, that that involved both of their relatives. Um, Until this day was geographic segregation, school segregation, social segregation, so that they lived in completely separate worlds where their paths never crossed. You've also suggested that we need more monuments to lynching and to the legacy of slavery. This one is monumental. They don't all have to be on that scale. What do you have in mind? Uh, you know, I, I'm somebody who believes in memory, if not monuments, or if not memorials, physical memorials. That it, it's, I did suggest that there is a memorial to Ida B. Wells that is um, that the family is trying to put together, and I think in my column I mentioned where people could contribute to that. But I think my greater concern is that we read about this history, that we not forget about this history, that we track our own relatives to make this history real and to understand how much the forgetting of it applies only to the to the brutality of what happened in the hanging, the memory, the felt memory, the sense memory, memory, the affect, the repercussions, the unconscious emotional repercussions that we carry forward in families. That is something we need to reclaim, put into perspective of what happened all the way back then, and to understand that this too is part of the legacy, that the ground in which we walk is still stained with the blood of, of horrific events just within the last two to three to four generations. Patricia Williams, her new column is titled Ida B. Wells Barnett Deserves a Bigger Statue. The National Memorial for Peace and Justice is extraordinary, and we need more monuments like it. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Pat. Thank you. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. 
Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.